So I titled this lesson because, oh, I don't know, I'm a, I love Law & Order, but I do not like watching Law & Order SVU. I just, I just really don't even want to watch it. I used to, and then all of a sudden, I realized it. I just didn't make, I didn't really clue in to the SVU was always about sex crimes. And I love a murder mystery, and that's why I like Law and Order playing Jane Law and Order. But uh, Law and Order SVU uh, is just really dark. And so this, this to me, this passage that we're looking at today is like the biblical episode of Law and Order SVU. Because it's sex crimey, it's dark, it's gruesome, it's just beyond entertainment. It's just bad and it really is hard to read and it's really hard to talk about. And so one of the reasons um, we have next week is just because like if you ever watch a scary movie or an intense movie and then Lee and I would watch it at night and we go uh we have to watch like David Letterman now or we have to watch Jimmy Fallon like we got to cleanse the palate that was just really dark I can't go to bed with that as the last thing on my mind so we're gonna do that next week we're going to uh look and go okay where is Jesus in Judges so that's next week but, we, but this is in Scripture, and everything in Scripture is for our benefit. So let's see what's happening here. One of the things that's interesting to me is just because this story is at the very end of Judges does not mean that chronologically it happened at the end of the period of the Judges. The period of the Judges is around 350 years. And the one person that's named in this passage is Phineas, and he was like the great nephew of Moses. So that clues us in to this is kind of early in the period of the judges. And that is disturbing to me. <laughs> They're this bad that soon? And so just like last week and this week, um, we, we're getting what does it look like to live in the period of the judges? Like, we're not just talking about the heroes, we're talking about what life was like. And because no one is particularly named like judges are, this is almost representative of the times. It just says a Levite. It just says a concubine, a father of the concubine, a host, a man from Ephraim, a man from Gibeah. You get the point. These are templates for what it was like to be an Israelite. And remember, the Levite is like the preacher type. Um, so what we're looking at is uh, this, what's happening, this gruesome, gross stuff is actually happening, involving and because of the children of God, not those bad old Canaanites that are outside and they're just living in the land with them. This is like the church is doing it. The, the people inside God's kingdom, the people inside God's family, God's own children are doing that. And in an interesting way, just like when I had kids growing up, if somebody else's kid said a bad word, whatever. My kids said the bad word, I was on it because they were my kids. God, this is, these are God's kids and he's on it. And we'll see that also, which is actually grace and a good thing because he's not kicked them to the curb, even though they're acting like this. So. Just like you would, like the detectives, you know, 
whatever Benson is or whatever in Law and Order, we're going to go to the crime scene and we're going to be like the writer of Judges. He does not say, this is a good thing to do. This is a bad thing to do. He just tells you what the crime scene is. So that's what we're going to do. So let's read Judges 19. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the young man's, I mean, when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing it toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here so that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed and came opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. They were near Jabus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go into the lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? So he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord. But there is no one who will take me into his house, although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, your female servant, and for the young man who is with your servant. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys. They washed their feet and ate and drank. 
As they were enjoying themselves, certain, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine, fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. Woo! That is a lot. I just even hate reading it. Okay, so we're detectives. We're going to just look at this calmly and see what we see. What is it that God's, the Holy Spirit has put in front of us to, to look at this crime scene? First of all, we see this Levite. He was of that special tribe that what the Levites did was they were the tribe that would handle God's worship. They didn't have their own territory. They were spread throughout the 12 tribes of Israel in the land so that everybody would have that presence of a Levite tribe. And we look and we just start asking questions. Why does a Levite have a concubine in the first place? Okay, that's one thing to notice. Um, he, if you start, at first you think the Levite is a good guy. Look, this sassy woman left him, committed adultery, and went home. But the more you learn and the more you read this story, the more the layers of this Levite are pulled back, you start seeing that, that he acts in ways that aren't very kind. Um, he treats her like property. Um, that one of the commentators suggested that he is more like he went back to go get his toy. And this relationship of concubine is not, is, it's definitely some sort of formal relationship, but it's not like a wife. It's not, there's, it's not obviously a loving relationship. And if you notice, the concubine is very much, the only thing you see her doing is leaving this guy and going back to her daddy's house. So you, and I don't know this, we're not told this from scripture. She did wrong. She committed adultery. She left the relationship. She, according to the law, should have been stoned for that. 
But I also wonder if I had been in her place, if I wanted to go back to my daddy's house too, okay? And maybe she didn't have a lot of choices. Maybe once she did the adultery, that was the safest thing for her to do. And then you've got her daddy with this mess on his hands that his own daughter has brought this kind of shame on his house. So that's kind of the, the, the what you see. You see this woman committing adultery, but you also want to see her for who she is. And that most of this story, from the time she goes back to her daddy's house, the rest of the time she's passive. Things are done to her. People make her go one way or another. She is an object of her husband. She's an object of her father. And this is the kind of culture that we see when God's rules are not followed. Um, the Levite is self-promoting uh, relationships. Like he, relationships to him are about him. Um, I think it's interesting that everywhere he goes, he sure likes to have a good time. He stayed at that father-in-law's house a long time. Then in, uh, when they're sitting there in Gibeah, he's having a great time with his host. Like, he's kind of this, you know, great, like, loves to have a good time, loves to eat and drink. But then we see um, just this story play out even more. And then you're kind of going, what's up with his father? Why does he keep on wanting the guy not to leave, not to leave? I don't know. One commentator said it's almost like he's being overzealous and making sure this guy is going is, is, uh, to be okay with his family. That he's just really trying to make amends for what his daughter has done. But anyway, he goes. The, the girl has to go back with the guy, to the, with this Levite. And then they go to Gibeah. And it's almost like one of those movies where, you know, you get into a small town and there's this weird music being played or people looking out from the windows and the curtains and you get the sense that something's not right and you get the sense that something's not right in Gibeah. And it's interesting too, you learn about the Levite that he didn't want to go like his servant suggested to one of these other places that were probably safer. Like, let's go to Jebus or wherever. That's the precursor to Jerusalem. It's where the Jebusites were. Well, he was like, I'm not going to where all those pagans are. So he's kind of racist. He's kind of being like, I'm not going where those really bad people are. I'm going to go to one of my people. I'm going to go to Gibeah and look at how his own people treat him. And so you get this guy coming in from the field, seeing them sitting in the town square. And so what should have happened if things were going well and God's laws were being followed is someone would have taken them in. He even said, I have, they don't have to spend a dime on us. You can tell there's a problem that hospitality is not being shown to this, this Levite and his two servants. And so he says, oh, come, come to my house, come to my house, but you cannot stay here. And you also, your, your spidey senses tingle. Something's wrong. Why is he so worried about this? And we find out very quickly. And so we see this host who's very hospitable, doing the right thing. And then these men come to the door, banging on the door, and they want to basically rape the Levite. Okay? And you're just going, ugh, this is why I don't read the Bible. I'm just kidding. Uh, 
this is really bad. Uh, this is like bad, bad. I wouldn't let my kids watch this movie bad. Um, and the host, who's been so hospitable and so godly up to this point, says, you can't do this. This is so bad. You cannot do this. Let me give you his concubine and my daughter, who's a virgin, who has got to be young. Talk about not feeling safe in your own house. Okay, so when pressed, he treats the women like property. Why not tr send the other guy servant out? He's a servant too, but he's a man. And so you just see where women rank in this culture. And you see that that's part of what, if you do not follow God's laws for his people, the abuse that starts happening on the ground, especially with women. Because in their culture, in the day, they were treated like property. So then, so that's, that's, those are all the, the bodies we see in this story. So what happens then? They rape the woman, the concubine. They gang, she has gang rape all night long. I just want you to remember this is a real person. It's a real woman. This isn't just a little cartoon in the Bible. This happened back in the Bible days, and this is a different world. No, this is a real woman that her, she had a miserable life. She had a miserable life, and it ended in misery. And she just barely makes it back to the door. I mean, the way the writer paints the picture is she is just trying to get back to the safety of her husband. And the way he acts, this is when I just am like, you Levite are the worst. <laughs> he, he gets up, like he slept, he went to bed, he was safe. He gets up, gets dressed, has his, you know, Wheaties, gets ready to go. He's not even waiting around for her. And oh, there she is on the doormat. And what's he say? Get up, let's go. Obviously she can't, there's no noise. So he puts her on his donkey and carries her back home. Now, I hope that woman died before he cut her up. Cause it never says she died, but I'm hoping that she died. I hope the odds are, I'm hoping she died. But then he takes her home and cuts her up again. This is a movie we would not let our children see and takes, takes her limbs apart and FedExes them all across the country, one to each tribe. And they receive a piece of this woman in the mail. Whoa. And they all, this is, this is their country's, you know, like when there's a school shooting and everybody in the country goes like, what? Or a George Floyd moment when everybody goes, what? Everybody goes, what is going on? Nothing has happened like this. And it's not just that they gang raped this woman. It's that the Levite cut her up and sent her everywhere. Like he was getting the reaction he wanted. He said, my property was treated this way. 
and I want vengeance. He did not care about her, obviously. He cared that his property had been treated like this. And it's just this huge culmination of chaos and grossness. And this is where, when you don't have a king, this is what happens. This is what happens to God's people. When they're not following God's laws, they're not following God, and they don't have a leader who holds up God's laws as the ruler that we're going to live by. So it is culminating in this abuse and harm and shock and shame, and it's just almost you feel dirty reading it. And by their standards, and even by today's, thank goodness, it still impacts us the same way. This is awful. This is awful. But there's a strange twist here to this story in Judges. And it should remind you of a story in Genesis, I think around Genesis 19, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember that story, uh, two angels visited Abraham. And they were there, and they told them that he was going to have a baby. And then they were going, their next stop was a place called Sodom. And they were going to judge it. And Abraham said, oh, if there are just ten people there, if, you know. And they go because Abram's nephew Lot lived there. And he had just kind of moved slowly but surely from living near Abraham to living in Sodom. And same thing happened there. The angels visited Lot. The men of the city banged on the door and said, we want to know them. We want to rape them. And Lot said, here, take my daughters. I mean, what is it? You could, to be a daughter in a godly man's house was really risky, I guess, you know. And so you see the same thing happening. Except now this is God's people. And you know they're going to line that up in their minds of we are acting like Sodom that had fire and brimstone and God destroyed Sodom after getting Lot and his daughters out. And so there's a lot of unfaithfulness going on, but this time there's no angel to save the concubine. There is a problem that this is, this is the standard way things were, just like we said already. And the bottom line is God's family is depraved. And there's not much difference between them and the pagans around them. And remember, part of the promise to Abraham was that God was going to make his family, this people of God, to be a light to the nations, a blessing to the nations. Um, this is how people in the world were going to know about God and want to be a part of this beautiful salvation. But this is not beautiful anymore. And who would want to go live with this? So it's a strange new kind of Sodom. It's God's own people. But then, then, then when you're like, oh, that's really bad, then you get this strange reaction and the judgment that comes on this situation. First of all, the reaction of Israel to this dismembered body and to this crazy story is they get suddenly very unified. It's like all of them come together, except Benjamin, of course, which is where it happened. And they want to root out the sin. But... If you really look closely at the crime scene, you look at what the Levite comes and tells them why he did it. And his story isn't exactly right. You know, if you kind of speed read it, you're like, yeah, yeah, he told them what happened. 
But he didn't really mention that he pushed the concubine out there. They were going to kill him. No, they really just wanted to know you and rape you. But you see that it's just a little twisted, just a little. It's bad, but he ups it some. And they depend all on this Levite's testimony. A whole civil war built around this one thing, this one testimony. So they get all up in arms. They're going to go and they're going to attack and they take all these O's and they get all ready. And sin starts getting even more out of control. Um, the sin builds on itself. So Israel comes to Benjamin and says, send out the people who did this. That's a pretty good idea. And then Benjamin, his sin is, he goes, nope, we, Benjamin, are going to protect our own. And they, their blood, you know, blood is thicker than water. Their blood is thicker than the Bible to them. Okay? And just as an aside, where I see this happening, where it's, I'm tempted to do this, and where a lot of believers are tempted to do this, is when one of our own is sinning. And we would rather protect them and make them be feel okay about their sin than to call it sin. So you see this with families. Their, their son comes out as gay, and now they don't believe it's a sin. Because to believe it's a sin would be to somehow say my son is wrong. And blood is thicker than the Bible. That's just an example. You can do it on lots of sins, you know, whether it's materialism or racism or living with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, we do it on a lot of things, but that is one where I feel like I've seen the church do that too. Is blood thicker than the Bible? Because that's what Benjamin does. And so you have a war. And it's almost like the judgment on this God just lets them have at it. That's the judgment. He lets them be their own judgment because they are so messed up and how they do this. Um, so I also want you to notice if you read, and we're not going to read it all in, in chapter 20. Well, let's just read 26 through 28 in chapter 20. So they go to God, which is good, right? They've already decided what to do, but then they're going to go pray and get their spiritual catch-up on it. Um, so go to verse 20. Uh, Let's see. Oh, well, basically, let me tell you what happens first. They, they go to war, and they get beaten. Then they go to war again, and they get beaten. And they're asking, should we go up? He's like, yeah, go up. Yeah, go up. And the, then you're like, okay. Then they react differently the third time when they go to God. And that's where we want to start in verse 26. Then all the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Okay, this is where, as the reader, I want to say, okay, are the Israelites being good or bad right now? Because I see some good. I see them going to God. I see them going to the house of God. I see them praying. I see Phineas is there. I, and Phineas, if you remember in, I 
think Exodus or Levit anyway, back in the desert days, he was the one that killed the people for just disrespecting the Lord. So he's a strong follower of God. Okay? And so you go, looks like they're doing good. But at the same time, they didn't really ask God at the beginning. And what they're doing is like, I don't know. I just, I want you to feel the tension of there's good and bad motives and actions all tangled up in this. And that is how I live my life. I am a mixed bag. I may say, I am going to go send my children to this school. And then I go pray, God, please let them have a good day at school. Please let work your will in their lives at school. And I never really asked him in the beginning. That's an example of what that could look like. Um, I want us also to be okay with what the writer is showing us. There are no perfect players in this story. And there's no perfect action either. It's a bunch of good and not so good and really bad all in the same pot of soup. So, so they do have a little bit of a different approach though this third time. And I don't know, maybe that's why God said you can win this one. I don't know. It also could be part of following God is sometimes you get beat up. I don't know. I, I don't understand God here. I don't understand what's going on. And it's okay. But the third time they go to battle, they decimate the Benjaminites. They go from having 26,000 men to 600. So they totally beat them. Okay? So some of them escape to this place. They're kind of safe for a few months. And things kind of settle. The dust settles. And then the strangest things happen. <laughs> then all the Israelites are upset. Because now they're sad. Oh, one of our own, our baby brother Benjamin, he's not going to survive the Civil War. We've decimated him. How's he going to have, like, there's nobody for him to marry. Like, you know, and not to mention, they, like, went and just burned down some cities in Benjamin. Went past, we just want to take the men that did this to killing a bunch of other women and children and men and burning down cities. Like, they got war fever. They just were violent, and it was out of control. But now they're sad, and they go to God and go, why is, why is this happening? And if you're God, you want to go, doing you idiots. You did this. This was your fix to the problem. Because the other thing they did besides killing all these people is they took a vow that none of our daughters are going to marry a Benjamite. So now they're stuck. Because if they can't go back on their word, but then Benjamin's going to die out and there are only going to be 11 tribes. And that's getting into some covenant problems, okay? So their solutions have actually caused more problems. Does that sound familiar to how Christians act today? <laughs> so they've gone too far. They're stuck. And their idea of fixing this is finding a loophole where they, um, they figure out there was one city that didn't come and help them fight. So they go and burn that town and kill all their people except for virgin daughters. But there are only 400 there. 
So they're still missing a few. So then they tell them to go while these girls are having like a party and dancing to go raid and kidnap them. And they'll tell their fathers, at least you didn't break your vow. This is okay as far as your vow goes. Again, women as property. And it's just the irony of this that they were so pursuing justice because this concubine was killed and dismembered. But in pulling off justice, they just decimated a bunch of women. And you're just, if you're, you're just looking at, this is how, this is how God's people solve problems. And you're going, wow, we have got real trouble. We have got real trouble because instead of making life better, God's people made it worse. So how do we react to this? First of all, it is okay and appropriate to mourn and be sad and be disturbed for them and for us because again, time does not repeat, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so we've got to look in the mirror and go, how do we as individuals are like the Levite or the host in the story? And how at a church level are we like God's people in this story? So how do we re repeat these same mistakes? We've got to look out for those blind spots. Okay, on a personal level, do I, do I treat people like commodities? Um, this could have been asked of slave owners in the past. This could be asked of racists today. And then if you look at the church level, God's people then during slave times saying slavery was fine. The Bible backs it up. The church today, not calling out racism when they see it because that's getting too political. So, the sad thing, I don't know if you remember this movie, the, uh, have you checked the children, you know? And the, the moment of horror in that story or that movie is when they go, no, no, the call is coming from inside the house. And that's when you're really creeped out because out there in the dark is where the problem is. And in this story, we realize, no, the danger is inside our house, our spiritual house. And that's why it is all, this whole thing is strange. But then you have a strange salvation. This is where we're gonna look more closely at the story and find some grace and some salvation because there is a silver lining in this hurricane. So one of the things that Judges makes very clear and with an exclamation point of Judges 19 through 21 is that the solution is not gonna come from God's people. We are not gonna save ourselves. Uh, the Levite in last week's story and the Levite in this week's story that's kind of the, the preacher types. And if they screw it up this bad, how am somebody like me gonna do it? And the solution is not coming from us because we're so good or because we're so educated or just any of those things that we tend to try to use to make things better around us. And like I said, it's complicated. It's ambiguous. I don't understand what's right and wrong. I just know that it all stinks, you know? So there is no power. There's no army. There is no uh, paper. There's no speech 
is going to untangle the mess of this passage. There's nothing that can get rid of the, the shame. Um, but there is hope that we see in this mess. Okay, back in 20, when I was reading, when they went to Phineas, what I want us to notice that they had some things the old Sodom did not have. And they had access through Phineas the priest to God. They have divine revelation from God. So I don't know if that was through a prophet or Phineas told them. I don't know how they heard that from God, but they have divine and direct revelation. And then when he says, let Judah go up first. Remember before I've said that's the tribe where the king will come from. So that's kind of a signal for royalty. That's the royal type tribe. And so what I'm trying to point out is because it's so hidden there is there's a whisper, a whisper though, of the offices or roles that Christ will come and do for his God, for God's people. And on your handout, read it later, we're not gonna read it right now. That's just, that's theological talk for what I'm saying right now. And that when Jesus comes, he's gonna wear different hats. He's gonna wear the hat of a prophet where he brings God's word to earth He's going to be the embodiment of God's word. He's going to wear the hat of priest and that he's the sacrifice, making it right between God's people and God. And he's going to wear the hat of king. And those handouts will kind of explain some of that, but more in like seminary talk. And I'm not a seminary talker, so I printed that. <laughs> but, but what I want you to know is there's a whisper of a salvation coming that that is in there, and that is what they have that Sodom did not have. This is what God's people have that the outsiders do not have. They have a plan that is coming, and it, they know that the writer the whole time has been saying they don't have a king. They need a king. They can't lead themselves. My kids could not have gotten to Disney World without me. <laughs> and I couldn't have gotten there without Lee. <laughs> so I'm just saying that's like asking us to get to Disney World as five-year-olds. No, we need a driver. We need a planner. We need the person that pays for it. We need a king. And we'll talk about the king next week a lot more. But before we leave the story, and because we're going to talk so much more about the happy, where that whisper takes us. I, we're going to talk about that next week, but I don't want to leave such an ugly story without, without us putting the ugly where it can be handled. This story is a lot of shame. And um, do you know that um, story, it's the sequel to Cat in the Hat, the Cat in the Hat comes back, and in the story, the mom's gone and they mess up. They get a pink stain on her dress and to get it off, the cat, the hat says, oh, you just need to put it in the tub. And then the pink stain is on the tub and the dress. Then it, they, the more the cat in the hat helps, the more the pink stain is everywhere. Kind of like the story. It was one of my least favorite books, I have to say, to read to my children. It was really just never did it for me. But somehow it was always on the top 
and the real cat in the hat was you know torn up in trash somewhere so anyway I, I, I digress <laughs> but where in the book what finally fixed the pink stain is and it's so stupid that's why I hated something called vroom comes and it gets rid of the pink stain shame is like a pink stain that even if you didn't do any of this crime scene just by going to the crime scene you feel yucky and you have shame on you much less if you are one of the characters in the story and you may be today you may be the one who treats people like property you may be the one that has left the the husband to have an affair and run back to daddy's house you may be the one that says here take my virgin daughter because we these are god's people and we are god's people and how do we do what they have done and i want you to know that in hebrews 12 2 jesus takes all the pink stain all the shame and says hit it onto me i'm the one that can handle the shame i will wrestle it and i will kill it and i will dispose of it I've been listening, some of you know John Cox, who is a a Christian psychologist and he does, has done conferences here. Somehow I got on his podcast and he is talking, he was talking about shame and how shame should not exist anymore because Jesus has come and taken it. And that when shame comes up to you, to cling to you, that Jesus says to it, don't you dare touch her, bring it to me touch me with it because I will handle the shame because frankly I, can, I die under shame I crumple under shame shame I deserve shame that people have done to me shame that happens in the same room with me and I'm shocked by it and it's sticking to me kind of like the story and so I want you to know that with this much shame there is a solution for it so the shame you may have personally for that abortion for that affair, for you knowing I am chasing after stuff to make me feel better. The shame of stuff in your family now and in the past, mistakes you've made all the way back to fifth grade that you still cringe when you realize what you've done. Wrongs done to you that you can't get the shame off. Then those group shames of us that we're like, I'm not a racist, but maybe you belong to a church that has that history. And that shame is sticking to you. Maybe it's the yucky political fights within your church. Maybe it's internal conflicts in your church. Maybe it's just not reflecting well God's name in our community. Maybe it's caving in on sexuality stuff. Maybe it's just being snobbish and cliquish when we should be open and welcoming. Jesus takes all that pink shame and says, bring it. I will kill it and I will get rid of it. And that is the king that we need. Let's pray. Lord, you are mighty and strong, strong enough to take the shame of this kind of story and, and take it and wrestle it and kill it and throw it into the garbage heap of history. And it is hard though, with Satan whispering in our ears or with memories coming to our thoughts or just knowing that the world is this evil and that the church can be this evil, 
kind of just boggles us and where we want to hide from it. And you come and rescue us and you say, I'm going to take you to a place that has no shame because I rule there and I keep it out. And I pray that this day will come quickly because we know you've beaten it, but we still feel it. and We still see it threatening us and we still see the potential for it. And we just ask that you would free our hearts from shame and you would comfort us in such a dark part of this story of Judges. In Jesus' name, your your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.